Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Well, good morning. What day is it? Is it Wednesday? It's Wednesday, May 23rd, all day long. Thank you for joining The Bill Press Show. My name, well, folks, my name is Peter Ogburn. I'm sitting in for Bill Press today on a, uh, let's just say it's a little bit of a hectic Wednesday. It's hump day, and boy, am I tired. Just uh, beginning the show this morning with uh, lots and lots and lots of interesting things to talk about. I have to say, first of all, uh, a huge night last night for some primaries. They were, a, I mean, it was a big primary night, and we talked about some of this yesterday on the program. But I think, without a doubt, the biggest takeaway was last night, uh, Stacey Abrams. And Georgia, a candidate that we talked about yesterday, she is uh, going to be the Democratic candidate. She will be the Democratic nominee for the governor of Georgia, the first female African-American governor in history. In history. And again, this they thought was going to be fairly close. But I got to tell you, She demolished the field last night in Georgia. It was not close. And so, look, this is sort of one of those issues where Democrats, I don't want to say they're gambling because that sort of takes away from what she's done. But, like, look, this is a southern state. You have an African-American female who is running to be governor. It's always a gamble in the South, no matter who you're running as a Democrat, right? But, like, this in particular is something that will be a real test for the Democratic momentum and the Democrats in general. Will they be able to take that seat? I think yes, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Stacey Abrams is someone who has run unapologetically as a progressive. And, again, this is something that I've talked about for the last year and a half, 
when Democrats run these centrist Democrats, they that's when they find themselves in real trouble. You know, like not all centrist Democrats have the charisma of a Barack Obama. So Stacey Abrams is a real progressive, a strong progressive, uh, and she could very well be the next governor of Georgia. Wouldn't that be great? And also, by the way, it it does appear to be still, uh, looking at my calendar, it's still the year of the woman (laughs) in terms of politics. Uh, There was another big primary last night. You might remember there was a great ad uh, from a candidate named Amy McGrath. She's a former fighter pilot, and she was running for the 6th Congressional District in Kentucky, and she was running against Lexington Mayor Jim Gray, a, like an establishment, a very establishment candidate, and she destroyed him. I mean, she completely destroyed him. So that, again, is going to be another strong progressive with military service, by the way, that she can point to. And will Democrats be able to turn that around? Buddy, I hope so. I hope so. So, like, look, all in all, uh, my th- my biggest takeaway here is the DCCC, the, the sort of election arm of the Democratic Party for, the, for, for congressional candidates, they did not support Stacey Abrams or Amy McGrath. So that should tell you everything you need to know about the state of the establishment Democratic Party. So we shall see what happens. Meanwhile, breaking news, Donald Trump is still a snake. Uh, not sure, not sure that you all expected that to change overnight. Breaking, breaking, breaking news update. So, I, this is sort of a, a a fascinating story that's going on because there's so much that revolves around not only Donald Trump, but his quote-unquote fixer, his right-hand man, the guy that's gotten him out of multiple binds, but also appears to have put him into a couple of other big binds, Michael Cohen. I want to read directly from this article from the Puffington Host. Quote, a business partner of U.S. President Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, has agreed to, has agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in investigations, the New York Times reported on Tuesday. Eugenie Friedman, a Russian immigrant. Wow, weird. There's there's the whole Russian thing again. A Russian immigrant who is known as the Taxi King will avoid jail time and will assist government prosecutors in state or federal investigations, newspaper reports said, citing a person briefed on the matter. Now, we've talked about this a couple of times with people who especially know New York politics and the New York uh, political scene pretty well. When you start talking about the taxis and things like that, that's where you really can find some corruption in New York. And I know that that sounds maybe counterintuitive, but that that is what that is the way that a lot of this stuff gets covered up because it's such a large industry that's such a part of uh, um, 
of, of like how New York City runs, right? So, like, it's a thing. It's a thing. But this guy has agreed to cooperate with prosecutors, so my goodness. What is, uh, what, what could that possibly look like? Donald Trump should be very nervous. And look, I'm not one of these people that thinks that, like, it's just a, like it's it's going to be like this year that Robert Mueller catches up with Donald Trump. I just just don't just don't believe that. But they are certainly closing in not only on Donald Trump but on Michael Cohen. So then, what happens if Donald Trump's right hand man completely goes down? Does this mean that there's a better chance that Michael Cohen will? Uh, will flip, as everyone seems to think that he will. I don't know. I just don't know. By the way, the other thing that I wanted to talk about, we've got lots to talk about, by the way. We've got a lot of great guests that are going to be coming in. Um, uh, Andy Green, Managing Director of Economic Policy at the Center for American Progress, is going to be joining us in the studio here in just a couple minutes. Also, uh, next hour, Nikki Schwab from the New York Post will be sitting in with me for the hour. And Ryan J. Riley, senior justice reporter for HuffPost, will be able to get us up to speed on all the Cone news, all the Mueller news, and all of that. However, uh, I did want to mention this story. There is a sort of coordinated effort on the part of Donald Trump and John Kelly, they are trying to get rid of leaks in the White House, right? Which is an unwinnable war, right? <laughs> like, it, it is the ultimate unwinnable war. But Donald Trump seems to think that he can win this. He's never going to win this war. Leakers are going to leak. Washington, D.C., has a political economy that is built on on source reporting and access, and it's just not going to go away anytime soon. By the way, I wouldn't mind if it went away. I think that, frankly, there are a lot of reporters and writers who have gotten kind of lazy and use that as, like, the backbone of an entire story instead of actually going out and doing some stuff and, and finding some real, some real numbers. But, like, look, that, it, it just is what it is, right? Well, yesterday, Politico has a story about how John Kelly has signed off on a plan that would get rid of the communications team, some of their mid-level and junior aides. In other words, by the way, this is sort of a tangent, but I promise I'm going to tie it all back together. HBO has this great documentary, The Final Year, where... HBO was allowed to bring their cameras into the Obama White House in its final year. And you were able to see sort of how things happen. And a lot of it focuses specifically on foreign policy, which is really, really, really interesting. I don't, I've never seen a documentary quite like this that has the access that they got. But one of the points I, I, I want to make here is that you see how the communications team works. You see at the time, in the final year anyway, it was Josh Ernest that was the press secretary. And before he would go out for these press briefings, 
he would he would sort of hunker down with probably five or six people, sometimes more, to just sort of like get the facts on what the hell he was talking about, right? Which I think is smart. <laughs> I think that's how a, a large operation like the White House and the federal government should work. But Donald Trump, this is a story according to Politico, says that he's so freaked out over leaks that they want to get rid of like most of the staff in the communications department. Sarah Huckabee Sanders and a couple of other, quote, key senior officials will remain. But this is just so childish, right? Like, this is like uh, the, the, the catalyst for making this happen was because that leak where someone in the White House made a a joke about John McCain and his uh, rapidly failing health. John McCain, by his own admission, does not have that long to live. And the White House was making jokes about it, and somebody leaked that to the press. In fact, multiple sources leaked that to the press. And so... Now their reaction is, oh, no, we don't have to act like decent human beings. We just have to make sure that people don't leak this stuff, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I, I'm i torn on this because I think the Washington establishment, the, the Washington uh, uh, journalist establishment, is probably going to start actually losing their minds when they start losing some access, right? So, like, when they stop getting these scoops from the White House, from their uh, sources inside the White House, that might actually be enough for them to lose their minds because how else are they going to get their stories? So, in a lot of ways, it's just Donald Trump with yet another self-own shock of shocks this seems to be sort of how he does things by the way last night donald trump and we're going to talk about this with nikki schwab because she was covering this donald trump spoke at at an anti-abortion rally gala here in washington dc last night he had a lot of different things to say um but it's very clear that he is already campaigning for 2020, right? Like, that—that that is officially happening. And so there is a new poll, <clears throat> even though this election for 2020 is two and a half years away, which is, you know, a long time when you're living in hell like we are. But it's not that far away couple different numbers that I found pretty interesting. I know I like I, I I'm sorry to do this because I hate when people start talking about polls this far out because politics move so unbelievably fast. If you don't believe me, just look at how quickly things moved in the general election in 2016 where we all thought Hillary Clinton was going to win and then a couple days before the election we get this James Comey letter and that changed the minds of a lot of people and well, now we have President Donald Trump. So if you don't if you don't believe that politics moves fast, just 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 take a look. About a year and a half ago. Anyway, our buddy Steve Shepard from Politico says uh, writes in Politico 
These are from a Politico Morning Consult poll. Just 36% of voters, 36% of voters say they would vote for Trump over a generic Democratic candidate. So, by the way, we're not even talking about someone who can enthuse the base. We're not talking about a populist candidate. We're we're just talking about someone with a D behind their name. Thirty-six percent of voters say they would vote for Donald Trump over a generic Democratic candidate in 2020, compared with a 44 percent, 44 percent of voters who would pick the Democrat, the poll shows. One in five voters, 20 percent, are currently undecided. Now, you can read that a lot of different ways. Let's read it first. The first way is, is, is the best way for Democrats. Donald Trump is already 10 points in the hole against literally anybody with a D behind their name. Right? Like, we don't even mention who. It could be like a, a Bernie type, Bernie Elizabeth Warren type, or it could be like a, a Cory Booger. Uh, whoever. They just happen to be a Democrat. Whoever the Democratic candidate is, already Donald Trump is about 10 points in the hole. But, you know, yesterday when he was chatting about all of this, he was saying that Democrats are going to lose. He has raised the most money ever for the RNC. Nobody even comes close. And then we also have some audio of him here saying what's going to happen if the Democrats win. Yeah, I'd love to hear that because, I, I, I mean, th- this he is already campaigning for 2020. If Democrats ever gained power, they would try to put up the taxes, so many things, open those borders. They don't want walls. They don't want people stopping. Yes. You know, he did, I think, summarize what the Democrats want to do perfectly. We don't want walls. Yeah, we don't want a wall. We don't want a wall. And by the way, I, I hate to keep mentioning this, uh, but that HBO documentary, The Final Year, I really encourage you to watch it because it really does show. They don't want wall. It really does show what a difference there is between like a thoughtful president who wants to unite uh, several different countries, several different cult, several several different cultures, and sort of be part of the the world instead of this isolation that Donald Trump wants to put us in. It really it was like oh that's right I forgot what that was like because we've been through such a ringer in this last year and a half. So yeah, I think I think uh, I hate to disagree with Donald Trump here, but yeah, I think I'm anti-wall. <laughs> I don't think I need a wall in my life. No. So, you know, Ray, Ray, you and I have talked about this off air. When when Donald Trump was elected president on that very very weird evening in November of 2016, but when that happened, I thought to myself, and I thought for several months after. He is going to be president for eight years. He is a two-term president. Um, and I was convinced of that for several months. Mm-hmm. And that still could be the case. However, I do sort of feel that there has been a little bit of a change in this sense. In the sense that he's now had the office for a year. He clearly has not matured and taken on the... Uh, the gravity of the job, right? Mm-hmm. Which which a lot of Trump supporters honestly thought that he was going to do. They thought that he had to play this part to get to the get to the election, but 
Right. They once he, he was got that do job, about face. Once and... he got that job, he was he was going to do an about face. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of people have come to terms with the fact that that just ain't going to happen. So you've got Republicans that are sort of, oh, God, really? This is what it's like? There's just not that much enthusiasm. Meanwhile, you have enthusiasm among Democrats skyrocketing. You know, I this is definitely true, and I do think that it's trending this way, and I hope that your optimism, I hope that I am wrong, but I still believe that Donald Trump will be president again. I mean, I could certainly see a world where that happens, right? Don't get me wrong. But I think that I've changed to a point where I just I just kind of feel like best, I should say, worst case scenario for Republicans, best case scenario for Democrats, is there are a lot of Republicans who were just like, I got to vote because I'm a Republican. It's too important. I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. Mm-hmm. I just have to go vote. And then all of a sudden... They see what Donald Trump has done, and they're just going to go, you know what? I just don't have to vote this next time. So I'm curious. I just don't have to vote next time. I'm curious, um, and I'd like to hear from our listeners, too. You at can, BP Show. At BP on Show on Twitter or on um, YouTube at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. There's an active chat room there. But the Trump supporters in my life, they are still just as gung-ho about him now as they were one year ago. See, that's really interesting because I've had the exact opposite, right? Like, I, I'm in I'm in regular communication with probably six, which mm-hmm. I know is a very, it's obviously a very small sample size, right? But, like, six Trump supporters. Okay. Uh, including my parents. And... Every single one of them, every single one of them has some version of, I thought he was going to take the job more seriously than he's taking it. So, and I thought that, the, and I thought that the job, the gravity of that job, would get to him, mm-hmm. and it clearly hasn't. So, the Trump supporters in my life um, sort of fall into two buckets. Okay. One bucket is the religious evangelical sect of the Trump voters, and they believe that he is, A, anointed by God. So anything that he is doing to them is not wrong. Sure. And they're voting on sort of just these banner issues like abortion. Sure. Which they think he's doing wonderful things for, especially with Gorsuch's um, nomination and approval of course so they are still very much pro-trump they may not agree with everything that he's doing but on their big sort of moral issues they think that he has been a champion um that's fair including including all of the israel yeah tumult that's happening yeah and then the other group of trump supporters falls into the sort of regressive type like xenophobic and pro-guns yeah thing And they are very happy with what he's doing there. Sure. I think that makes sense. But, like, one of the, like, so, for example, just his general behavior has been a turnoff, I think, for a lot of people. But also, a lot of what Donald Trump is doing is so antithetical to the conservative Christian voter. And look, we've talked about this a lot, especially with our friend Jack Jenkins, who writes for the Religion News Service. We've talked about this a lot about what it would take for Donald Trump to actually lose the evangelical vote. And I'm not sure that he would necessarily, like, if if it's Bernie Sanders who is the Democratic candidate in 2020, which 
is a million years away, so who knows. But if it's Bernie Sanders, will a Trump voter go and vote for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or uh, Joe Biden or take your pick, Kamala Harris? Will they go vote for that person over Donald Trump? Maybe not. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I do actually think that if you really listen to the message of someone like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, I think that they speak to issues to, like, people who feel like, they, you know, the economic anxiety line that everybody is taking. Sure, like, was... I think they speak better to that than Donald Trump certainly does mm-hmm. and better than any other Democrat. But I don't think that they would get somebody else's vote. I think they would just, uh, any other Republicans vote, I think the Republicans would just stay home. I hope you are right, Peter. Ray, you have to realize I'm wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> okay, but on this one, I really, really am rooting for you, Peter, and I really hope that you are right. Some people are weighing in in the chat room, so we have some new some new people. Yeah, hit haven't it. seen these people in the chat room before. What's up, guys? So we hey hey we have Tarkeen Wild saying Dems and progressives should run not scared on the wall, the border wall, totally. as an electoral issue. They need to run hard on it. And okay, I'm for it. I'm for it because I think that there are some things that people are like, oh, this is too hot of an issue. And Democrats are notorious for doing this. And then they don't run hard on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a hundred percent true. But that's that's kind of my point. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm certainly not on the Bernie Sanders wagon already for 2020. But I, I, this is why I keep mentioning like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, like they run hard on the things that they believe in. Right, they don't try and have try and be everything to everybody the way that some candidates try to do, and I think that if you sell that and then you deliver on it, you've got a Democratic majority and a Democratic president for a while because people will see the good that can be done with like actual progressive politics. Thank you for your comments in the chat room, uh, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Also, follow us on Twitter at BP Show. I see we're tweeting this morning. We tweeted a picture of, of, of me and WeeBay from last night. Look, just pulling back the curtain a little bit, we had a bumpy start to the show, so Very we needed start. something just uplifting, and WeeBay's face is there. WeeBay's face is there. WeeBay and I were, tw- were twinning last night. So go check it out. Uh, it's B- uh, BP Show on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll read some of your comments, too, if we get those in. Uh, let's hear them, at BP Show. Stay tuned. More of the Bill Press Show coming up, including more ways that Donald Trump is completely dismantling uh, your well-being, the Dodd-Frank Act. We're going to talk about that next with Andy Green from the Center for American Progress. Stay tuned. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Thank you for tuning in this Wednesday, all day long. I appreciate it. Lots of stuff to talk about today. Uh, one of the things we hadn't gotten a chance to talk about yet, and I'm so glad that we brought in a big brain to help us through this, uh, he is Managing Director of Economic Policy at the Center for American Progress, former counsel at the SEC, Andy Green. He's in studio with us. Hey, Andy, how you doing? Hey, good morning. I appreciate you coming in. Uh, my name is Peter Ogburn. We are on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, we're also uh, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Um, okay, so I, I want to, first of all, uh, uh, play a uh, uh, Read a couple of comments from Twitter where you're finding us at BP Show. 
Uh, we were talking about whether or not Donald Trump actually has the momentum to make it through and win in 2020. We got a couple of comments on that. Loretta says, how many new voters will be eligible by November 2020? That could be a key factor. That's a good point that I didn't really uh, like put put out there, right? <clears throat> like that, that could very well be the difference. Uh, s- salty Alter Ego. I like that Twitter <laughs> handle. Salty Alter Ego. You mean to tell me that you all think between now and 2024, nothing is going to happen to Trump and he's just going to sail into another four years? It's not going to happen. Now, that that's the other part of this, right? Like he could very well be indicted, but if there's still a Republican House and a Republican Senate, I wouldn't I wouldn't count on that happening. I certainly wouldn't count on impeachment, y'all. Anyway, we'd love to get your comments at BP Show on Twitter and YouTube.com slash the Bill Price Show. So Andy Green is with us. Uh, we hadn't talked about this yet, but this story is completely bonkers. Congress yesterday approved a plan to roll back the Uh, regulations that were put in place after the 2008, 2007, 2008 financial crisis. We remember that, right? (laughs) Exactly. It was not a good time. And yesterday, the House said, all those things that we did to try and keep us safer from another one of those, we're going to get rid of those. Let me ask you first, Andy, what were the regulations that were put into place and, and how effective have they been? Well, the regulations that were put into place really came out of the disaster that was the 2007-2008 financial crisis that happened during the George W. Bush administration and saw the average wealth of the of a, the real wealth of the average middle class family collapse by 49 percent. I mean, this just knocked out the housing wealth, the stock market wealth, the, the real wealth of the average middle class family fell by 49% compared to 2001. I, I haven't heard it put in terms like that. Yeah. That's shocking. Yeah, it's really incredible. And, it, you know, there, there are other factors going going on. There's globalization and trade, there's automation. But if you look at just the, the, the 2008 2007 financial crisis, it really had a tremendous impact on ordinary Americans. And what were the causes? The causes were... Massive, massive uh, consumer financial protection violations where ordinary Americans who were trying to buy a home were pushed into really dangerous exploding mortgages that when interest rates started to change, they were unable to to pay on their mortgage. And they should have had a real stable, solid uh, situation in their house, and they, they were not. What else was going on? Massive, massive gambling on Wall Street via products such as complicated things known as swaps or derivatives were basically... You know, one bank promises to pay another bank or another investor money based on some change in something else going on. Well, they found that the change uh, uh, jammed them, and they were suddenly, you know, AIG uh, failure is the best example. The best mm-hmm. example of this. They found themselves short billions of dollars. What was also was going on? Massive, massive proprietary trading. So all these things were happening in 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008. Dodd-Frank came in and said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to have a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that'll make sure that uh, financial products that you and I need, like our credit cards, yeah. like our mortgages, are good, stable, solid things that, look, they'll they'll earn the bank some money. That's fine, but it's not going to blow up in our face. Yeah. And it said, you know, you're gonna, your bank is going to serve the real economy. It's going to not engage in massive types of prop trading. And we're going to have real regulation of the derivatives market and other things. So it put into place real solid regulation to have a real grounding. 
Let, let me park it on that for just a second, because yeah. you mentioned the CFPB, the, yeah. the, the Consumer Protection Bureau. Yeah. What has happened to that <laughs> under Donald Trump? Because we remember that that's where, you know, this was sort of Elizabeth Warren's baby, uh, uh, and she didn't lead it. She went on to go yep. become a senator and right. has done a lot of other great, great work, more important work, frankly. Um, but this is still very, very important stuff. Now what? Now what is what has it become? And what because this, it doesn't really even seem like it's a certainly not a priority, but it barely even exists now. Well, the, the, you know, uh, Grover Norcrest once said that their their desire was to drown uh, government, drown the baby in a bathtub. Yeah, and you know that's what's going on. A charming analogy. <laughs> a charming, from a charming man. <laughs> uh, and that's what's going on at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and a lot of other parts of regulation, financial regulation. You know, you most ordinary people don't wake up, pay attention to what's going on in complicated rulemaking processes at federal financial regulators. Fair, uh, but you know. When that stuff goes badly, uh, it's you and I that pay the price. It's our taxpayer dollars that go to rescue the very wealthiest people up on Wall Street, which is what happened in 2008. And, and so what's, what's going on right now at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they've got a director in there who's a former congressman that has repeatedly voted to shut it down, to make it into a, a, a toothless agency that is dropped and dialed back enforcement that has frozen regulation that is icing people out that is trying to shut down the 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 data collection the consumer complaint hotline and database that allows ordinary people to say hey uh my um xyz lender is is hurting me is discriminating against me is i'm trying to go get an auto loan and and they're charging me higher amounts because i'm african-american or i'm a woman or whatever it is right right. uh you know no we're going to have less information we're not going to have the the federal government and the consumer the consumer bureau stand up and and fight for ordinary human or ordinary people. That's so depressing, man. It really is depressing. But it's it's sort of one of these things that I've. I'm not the only one, certainly. But like yeah. this is a point where whoever runs for president, whoever runs for Congress, whoever runs for Senate, has to make the argument. Government is good for you. Yep. Government has the power to do things that no private business can do. They have the backing. They have uh, they they just have the reach that they can do things that private business can't, frankly, won't do. Well, because it doesn't make sense financially. Well, and the banking system is particularly unique. If you yeah. think about the banking system, what is the foundation of the banking system? It's in your wallet. It's in my wallet. It's green. It's got a picture of George Washington on it. Who prints that? Not ordinary people. The government prints that. Exactly. And so at the end of the day, if we want loans and, and, uh, you know, we want the economy to function, this is a pro-business argument. Let me make sure. Sure. This is a pro-business. I want a bank that is out there making loans to the real economy. I do not want it gambling, taking risk for its own, you know, trying to line the pockets of its executives and shareholders and leave the bill to the taxpayers when it's when it bets wrong that's what's at stake here and so the idea that you can have you know you cannot have a government role in the banking system is is absurd it's a question of who gets the money that's part of your stump speech andy (laughs) like if you're gonna run that's that that's pretty damn good i mean look that there's this sort of 
boogeyman that the right wing has created, right? Yeah. That like Democrats are anti-business. They want to they want to dismantle the banks. You know, they hate people making money. They hate capitalism in general, right? Banks are so profitable. They've oh, had oh record profits this quarter. Yeah, this quarter, twenty-seven percent higher uh, than than the than pre this time of the previous uh, previous year. They banks are making a lot of money. We don't have a problem on that front. On that front, I don't think we've ever had that problem. I don't think banks have ever had that problem. So, so on that, if banks are making more money than they've ever made, yes, why in the world would we roll back these regulations? And I know that, I, 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 like, yeah. let's ju- let's just peek inside the mind of a Republican <laughs> that voted for this. Why would they do that? What is their argument? What's their calculation that they can sell to their voters? Because I can't think of many voters middle-class, rural Trump voters who will say, damn it, you know, I, the the one thing I'm looking for yeah. is for my bank to be able to screw me however they want to screw me. And if I get a president that does that, then they've got my vote. Why would they do this? They think they can get away with it. They think that... Boy, that's they, scary. They think they can get away with it. You know, uh, when you're... I basically think it's you know they're making a lot of money if and if they and their uh, lobbyists in D.C. think that they can figure out a way to make a little bit more, not have any accountability for that, you know, the taxpayer might have to go rescue a regional bank here or a a massive foreign bank that is not properly regulated here. Well, you know that'll happen in a couple of years, and hey, probably a Democrat will be president, so we can criticize it then as well, like we did back in 2008. <laughs> ah, ah, <laughs> hey, get my duct tape. Get me some duct tape and wrap it around my head so it doesn't explode. <laughs> this drives me crazy. Oh yeah, it's heads I win, tails you lose. Uh, but you know what? That's okay. We we stand for the public interest. Yeah, sure. We will speak truth to power. That's what we got to do. That's absolutely right. And this is what this is going on is this is this is exposing. And I, and I hope that the American people will pay attention to this because this is showing that the 2017 tax bill was not an aberration. Right. It was not about putting money in workers' pockets. No. It's not about creating jobs for working class Americans. It was about concentrating economic power in the hands of a very small number of people who already have the vast majority of it. And this piece of legislation is doing that even more. Uh, and then we're going to see, and, and you know, uh, again, it's about folks like you and me speaking about these things, piece by piece, regulation here, regulation there, dialing back the other pieces of Dodd-Frank that, uh, you know, uh, are were about preventing banks from taking major risks and handing the bill to the taxpayer. Oh, man. This is depressing. Okay, so this this bill... Is going to go to Donald Trump. He will most certainly sign it. Yes. Um, be a little. I don't want to be too pessimistic. Uh, uh, yeah. But let's let's be very clear. Right. What's at stake with this? What could we see? What? How could this play out? Let's let's start from small to big. Okay. And, and small is you know I, I don't want to uh, say these are small things, but sure. from the sort of the this bill makes it harder for. Um, rural Americans to get good, solid, safe loans. It makes harder for urban Americans to do that, too. So one of the things it does... Let me just stop you for a second. Doesn't stop them from getting loans. Makes it harder. And so let me tell you how. But to get good, safe loans. Both of those things in many ways. Many many ways. So one of the the smaller provisions in this bill is, is rolling back 
the data collection in the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, HUMDA. Who's ever heard of this? <laughs> but, you know, we have a system where we, we collect data about where loans are being produced all over the country. This data is useful for fair housing enforcement, for lending enforcement. It's useful for being able to understand, hey, what's going on in the economy of, uh, uh, of rural America and inner city America, places that are not getting sufficient attention. And so this bill says uh, exempted 85% of lenders from having to report that data. How many? 85% of lenders. <laughs> okay. So the very biggest banks will still have to report, but smaller banks won't. Who serves rural America? Who serves inner, inner city America? Who serves those places that are being left behind? It's a lot of the smaller banks. Yeah. And so we're going to have a lot less insight into what's going on. And frankly, we're gonna have, it's going to be a lot harder to have, to have good, solid, safe, and accessible lending in these places. This is just one small example of how you know, what is stated to be, uh, you know, a benefit for working Americans, yeah. wherever they are, is really, it's not. Um, here's another Here's another example. Um, the, the bill makes it, uh, it reduces consumer protections for um, uh, manufactured housing, uh, mm -hmm. tra trailer housing and manufactured housing in okay. many ways. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Uh, so, uh, it, it basically says if you're a lender or you're somebody selling uh, um, uh, selling manufactured home, who, who are buying these? Uh, often in rural America, often working, uh, hardworking families who are, are you know just barely scraping by. This bill says you can charge those folks more to to buy those to buy those properties to buy to buy that manufactured housing. We should be going the other direction. So anyway, this yeah, is yeah. this is this is what this bill is about, and why? Because there's one or two very small, uh, very powerful um, companies that that produce a lot of manufactured housing in this country, and they, you know, they donate a lot. Good so grief, man. Take, take it up a level of, of scariness. Uh, take it up a level of scariness. If you think of some I'm of, already a little scared. Well, it's just, it's, it, in many ways, it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah. It's, it's offensive. Yeah. It's wrong. It's the very people who deserve the most protection, the most, uh, you know, uh, their representatives ought to be on their side because, frankly, their a lot of those representatives are are, you know, are Republicans. Well, that's what, that's what I wanted to say. I'll be getting back to our earlier conversation. So many of these people that will be affected by this, yep. they proudly voted for Donald Trump. That's right, and will probably proudly vote for Donald Trump in 2020 unless someone explains to them that he does not have their best interests at heart. And by the way, it's not just Donald Trump. We're talking. Paul Ryan, who's going to be leaving anyway. Absolutely. It's just the Republican majority. This is what they do. You know, in many ways, It's Trump, almost like they don't know how to govern. Trump ran against the establishment in both parties. Yeah. He said, I'm going to... Uh, he, he claimed he was for, you know, the forgotten man, the working class. Definitely for the forgotten man. Sure. Know, but, uh, sure. you know, he claimed this. He claimed this. And what he has governed on is an establishment agenda. Establishment agenda that concentrates power and doesn't do anything for those ordinary folks. Now, let's let me show you a couple of other examples of what this bill does. You know, um, scandal rid. Let's if we have to think of one scandal ridden bank that is at the center of so many of the things that blew up in 2008 and are right now still at the center of a lot of uh, the Russia investigation. You know, Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Um, this bill. 
uh, deregulates their U.S. holding company, makes it harder uh, for U.S. financial regulators to make sure that what they're doing here in the U.S., and they're a large uh, entity, what they're doing here in the U.S. is not going to result in a massive bailout. Um, uh, this uh, bill does similar things in terms of dialing back the kind of the self-insurance that some of the largest mm. uh, banks uh, uh, have. So it just basically says, you know, the banking system is always, there's a certain amount of fragility to it. You, sure. It's always a little bit subject to risk. The question is how much? I was, this, I was just about to say, I think we can all accept that. I can. think we can all accept that. It, yes. It, it, yes. And, and it's just, it's a reality. It's going to exist. And this says, you know what, the amount of risk that Dodd-Frank said you got to have, let's dial it back because, you know, 2007, 2008 was a lot of fun. Let's let's get close and try that again a little Wasn't bit Wasn't that more. a good time? Yeah. Didn't we all have just a wonderful time? I, I, I still uh, use this example because Elizabeth Warren gave, I think, the greatest defense of government right. many, many years ago, right, when she was running for Senate. And she said, you go out and you make a ton of money with your product. That's awesome. We want you to make a lot of money. That's yes. great. Now you have to pay taxes. Yes. Because you were able to deliver your product on roads that we pay for. Your factory was protected from marauding bands of criminals <laughs> right. because we have a police force. Right. Uh, so for all these people that say, you know, oh, we, we want to pay less taxes, Donald Trump types, we, you, I, I'm smart because right. I didn't pay taxes. I don't want right. to pay taxes. This is what you're up against. You are essentially a freeloader. And so when you look at, like, the tax bill from last year and you look at the Dodd-Frank stuff that, that's going on now, will Democrats be able to sort of capitalize on that? And will they be able to make that message? Or I guess a better question would be, can Republicans run on it? I think they, I think they will have to run from it. Sure. Um, they, I think they are, um, you know, they they recognize that their voters, ordinary folks, don't really like this. So you know, I got everybody talking about Michael Cohen and, sure. and all the scandals out there. I think, frankly, I think they like the scandal because it distracts from what they're actually doing. It's a good point. Governing on a day to day basis. Now, I don't know that that's by design. <laughs> no, right. I, I have this right. conversation with people all the time. Like, I don't think that Trump is some, you know, Machiavelli type that's <laughs> like, look over here while we're doing this. I just think he just loves the chaos. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's it's sort of, um, it's such a difference from the no drama Obama, right? Where everything was, so, again, I, this right. is like the fifth time I mentioned it, but there's a documentary on HBO, The Final Year, where they look at the final year of Barack Obama's presidency. And it's just... Everything, every T is crossed, every I is dotted, everything is completely locked down. He's got total control. He and his team have total control of the situation right. because that's how they want to run things. And frankly, I think that's how things should be run. Right. Professionally, yeah. But Donald Trump loves the chaos. You know, we talk about how presidents age. We look at how Barack Obama aged mm -hmm. in the eight years that he was president. We talk about how George W. Bush aged. Donald Trump's going to come out of this looking just fine because <laughs> this is where he lives. Right. This is what he loves. Right. Right. So, right, right. like, oh, God. I mean, the, the, the chaos is all fine and dandy. Uh, and, you know, it's all funny until somebody loses an eye. Sure. It's an old saying. Uh, sure. You know, Donald Trump is riding the success of Barack Obama. Yeah. He's riding the foreign policy success. He's riding the economic policy success. He's riding a lot of successes of a Barack Obama. 
uh, and frankly, the hard work that Congress did in 2009, 2010 to get the economy and get the country back on track. And it's going to take a while. It's taking them a while to undo these things. They don't happen overnight. Sure. And it will take a while for the pain to be felt from uh, all these uh, things that they're undoing. It will not happen overnight. And so by the time things start really going bad and he should be held accountable, uh, you know, it, it may not be for another couple of years. Is he still there? Maybe. Will he be gone? Maybe. I mean, look at George W. Bush. A lot of the deregulation that happened on Wall Street happened in 2004 mm -hmm. uh, or, or in that vicinity. It took another four years for it to really blow up. And he was still in office. But, yeah. in, you know, frankly, most people thought that Barack Obama presided over the financial crisis. Yeah. He, he didn't. Right. He, he, right. he cleaned it up. You could debate whether he should have cleaned it up more tough, you know, tougher here, tough, whatever. But he didn't preside over the crisis. Right. Um, and will Donald Trump preside over the collapse of a major uh, regional bank or a major uh, foreign bank? Or, you know, how many people will have to be um, uh, charged how much more for their uh, home in rural America for, for him to and, and the Republicans that voted for this to be held accountable? I don't know. So we've got about... Two more minutes left yep. before we have to go to break. Um, let's just say that this happened. We, we we reach a point where a regional bank or a bigger bank yep. completely implodes. Are we then back into this world of bailouts and that whole thing again? Well, the good news is that the many of the key provisions of Dodd-Frank are still in place, so okay. we do have the authority to wind these institutions down. It's untested. I don't want to take it out for a spin. Would you say wind them down? When I wind them down, it's basically like it's bankruptcy, but with FDIC authority. It's, it's special authorities for banks to make sure that if you fail, that you're going to be shut down and you're not going to have the cost passed over the taxpayer. Sure, sure. But these are untested authorities, and the reason we have a lot of other protections in place is that it's not good to even try to wind down these banks. We want that bank there serving the real economy of, yeah. of, of these regions. Um, and, you know, if you look at, again, going back to just the economy, the economy and ordinary Americans, jobs are hurt when the financial system collapses. There are, uh, in 2000, if you look at the labor force participation of 2001 versus the two, labor force participation two that of right now, yeah. we are still short about three to four million jobs. And a major factor in that was wow. the financial crisis. Major Ten factor. years ago. Ten years ago. Ten years. Major, wow. major factor. Not the only factor. Globalization, automation, a lot of other factors going on. But this is something that ordinary, hardworking Americans, you know, they don't want. They want a paycheck that's going up. They want job opportunities being created. They don't want money being handed out to Wall Street and then them being left with both the paycheck and less economic opportunity. This is also depressing. It really is depressing. And and to think that if. Heaven forbid another collapse or crisis happen. Right. I mean, we're talking generations that we've been battling with this stuff. And I just, it's just very depressing. How many times will it take us to learn this lesson? That's that's the question. That's a, that's a that's very a, good and question. And we as a democracy will have to answer that question. Yeah, that's a very good question. All right. I really appreciate your time. He is Andy Green, Managing Director of Economic Policy at the Center for American Progress. Former counsel at the SEC. Thank you so much for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Good stuff. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com 
slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Thank you so much for tuning in. So, so much to talk about. So, so much to talk about. And we're going to talk about it with you today. Bill is out. So, my name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in. Or Bill today. You can follow the show on Twitter at BP Show. We've got lots of comments there. You can also follow me on Twitter at Peter Ogburn. I don't tweet as much anymore. But when you do, it's good. Like pictures of WeeBay. I tweeted, I, I tweeted a photo of my dog and I last night. If you want to see Peter's beautiful face with his dog's beautiful... Well, my beautiful dog with my face. Yes. That's all. Um... Uh, then check it out. Joining us in studio is Washington reporter for the New York Post. It's the first time yeah. you've been here since you switched jobs. First of all, congrats. Job change. Thank That's you. That's very cool. It's very cool. The New York Post is doing phenomenal work. I, I mean, phenomenal work. I went for the Daily Mail to the New York yeah. Post, so clearly I enjoy what we would call tabloid journalism. <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's good. It's substantive. It's good. It's really fun, and I think in, in Washington, especially under this administration, we know that the president uh, has been a longtime reader, so that's kind of exciting, but also a little scary. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting point, actually, which is something that I, I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but like Donald Trump is not a, uh, first of all, he's not really a reader. But I don't think that he reads a lot of, like, uh, he's a creature of the New York. Yeah, he grew grew up in the New York sort of tabloid scene, New York Post, New York Daily News, The Observer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So whenever I was thinking about whether or not I should take the job, one of the things that sold me on it is the fact that I know that the president is a fan of the publication and has, has been reading it for years and has been trying to get his name and, you know, bold face print in the post for years. So, yeah. uh, I do want to ask you just quickly, because we gotta, we, we, we're going to have a break here coming up for in just a second, a very quick one. But you wrote about Barack Obama and Michelle Obama with their production deal. Yes. With Netflix. The Netflix deal, which, you know, I... I wasn't very surprised about because I feel like they've been sort of put, dipping a toe in entertainment for yeah. a long time. Uh, you also had, obviously, their eldest daughter, I always forget which one's which, Sasha, no, Malia. Malia, Malia yes. yeah. Uh, who who interned a bunch on various sort of uh, projects. She did this Halle Berry movie. She did uh, Girls she with Lena Dunham. And then she also worked for Harvey Weinstein before we right. knew what a creep he was. Sure. Uh, so, you know, she's obviously been in an entertainment world. They've always had supporters in the entertainment world. So I wasn't super surprised. And they also did this kind of interesting thing on the 50th anniversary of the MLK assassination in which President Obama sat down with uh, Representative John Lewis and did this kind of Q&A as part of My Brother's Keeper. So you sort wow. of saw that there was like, you know, the the inkling of interest in sort of documentary filmmaking. So it'll be interesting to see what they do, especially if they're scripted stuff. That's that's uncharted territory for a former president. Exactly. I, I mean, I can't think of anything that would even come close. I mean, Obama was the first quote-unquote celebrity president, as, right. as Senator John McCain would say back in the 2008 right. cycle. So it does, in many ways, make a lot of sense. Richard Nixon went on laughing. I guess that counts. Yeah. That's close. 
That's like the Netflix of its day. What also George W. Bush has been has, has had been so quiet for so many years. Yeah, and obviously did you know his pet projects when it came to you know Wounded Warriors and all of his painting. But this is very much a, a, a obviously like a very front and center project if he's literally going to be putting out entertainment content. Did you watch the uh, the David Letterman where he interviewed Barack Obama I did. on his Netflix show? It's so I, good. I did. And also, First of all, the Letterman also thing that is should have given us a hint, too. And I think that there were sort of you know rumors that Obama was talking to Netflix about doing something cool. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a fascinating move. And, like, look, love him or hate him, he is one of the best communicators. Absolutely. Of, of any generation, right? Yeah. And so, like... He could be like a David Letterman. He could be like a not not necessarily in style or substance like a Howard Stern in the sense that he's just a very very good communicator, knows his audience, knows how to reach people. And Hollywood often sort of pushes the culture. I mean, you think about issues like same sex marriage. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hollywood made that sort of normal before you know politics caught up. And I think that the president, the ex president, realizes this. All right. Very very quick break. We'll be right back. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Indeed, it is the Bill Press Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Peter Ogburn. Hosting the show for today. Thank you for tuning in. It's been a morning. <laughs> it's been a morning. I don't want to pull the curtain back too, too much. Nikki Schwab, by the way, is is with us this morning. You're in for the hour. Washington reporter for the New York Post. Uh, Nikki Schwab, you can follow her on Twitter, at Nikki Schwab. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks for coming in with the B team. The, the JV B, team. The B team. Whatever. <laughs> Come on. We uh, So to pull back the curtain just a little bit, we had some maintenance in the in, in the studio overnight. So we had to unplug everything. Like cameras, TVs, cable boxes, satellite stuff, clocks. Everything had to be unplugged. My brain. My brain. <laughs> so this morning, there was just a frantic plugging everything back in, testing, some things weren't working. We got it all up and running, literally with like two and a half minutes to spare. Yes. That's very impressive. I don't know if I would call this impressive. It was harrowing. I mean, I literally can't even <laughs> pull out my computer cords and my chargers and my press passes without it like looking like I have a serious issue. Like spaghetti, like right? It just stuff. Notice how I have my computer <laughs> plugged in so that it charges? I've done this for the entire show. We've been on the air for over an hour. It's not plugged in. <laughs> it's purely for aesthetic purposes. I didn't plug my charger in, so my battery is rapidly dying. <laughs> but... All just like prepared. the last year of Obama in the White House, we are crossing our T's, dotting our I's. That's us. It's a tight ship here. That's us. No drama. No just like drama. Obama. Just yep. <laughs> I remember those days. Right? Weren't those quaint? Yeah. You remember gaffes when gaffes mattered? That was fun. <laughs> uh, oh, and there would be like one spelling error. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I can't remember. I, I, I Look, people get mad at me because everyone should know this. I mentioned it before. I was the state spelling bee champion 
Oh my when gosh. I was a kid. I only I only won my school district wide spelling bee, and then I got out a mortgage on the county level. Oh, mortgage was your word? Yeah, and then whenever I got a mortgage a couple years ago, I was like, <laughs> oh, I hate you. I still remember. So I lost. So I was a state spelling bee champion for a couple of years in a row. By the way, that's very impressive. And I went out. You know what word I went? There were two words because it was a double elimination. Two words I went out on that I'll never ever ever misspell. Duchess. I put it a T. You put a T. I put a T. Yeah. Oh, no. The and royal wedding must have been hard. It was really tough for me. <laughs> and shellac. I went out on shellac. Mm. I put a K. I put a CK at the end instead of just a C. Just a C. Oh, I, yeah. It's just a C. But I was in fifth grade. I thought you put the K. Yeah. Mine was sixth That's grade. That's a tough one. Those silent Ks are tough. The silent Ks. That's what got They'll me. They'll get you. Anyway, people get mad at me because I make fun of Trump for all of his misspellings. Like Melanie? Like the name of his wife? I mean, that's... The name of his beloved? That's obviously an autocorrect because there's probably more Melanie's than Melania's. Fair. But but also, if you have that in your phone, the way that autocorrect works, like if you have her name in the phone, like it will recognize that. I will say that like oftentimes I'm texting and like someone's name will pop in as a word. Sure. That's how my iPhone works. Yeah. I am... I, I've mentioned this before. I think it's a pretty low bar because people are like, oh, you're such an elitist for making fun of Trump for not being able to spell. Am I, though? I mean. Am I? I think, again, it's a it's a low bar. He's a nuclear launch code, so you should probably, you know, yeah. basic, I would like you basic to be able grammar to and syntax. I would like you to be able to spell correctly. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just mean. I'm trying to find out. Someone tweeted at me not that long ago that was like, hey, this is just not like – this isn't very nice. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're if if you're a reporter or a journalist mocking the president's spelling in his tweets, you aren't helping rebuild trust with the public about media. And it's like, no, the media should be worried about getting things correct. Yeah, I mean th- that's the whole beef that he has with us. So he says. Thank though, you. Though he also says he does does it to like, you know. Make sure he can get away with like negative news, and his supporters will still like him. He but. came out the day after he put Kofefe. I was like, no, no, I meant to do that. You just have to figure out what it meant. It's, yeah. Folks. Yeah. Don't think that's true. Okay. I mean, I'm glad that it's like now in the vernacular. I mean, people still totally. use it all the time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's part of it. All right. I want to talk about some of your reporting because uh, last night, Donald Trump spoke uh, at the Susan B. Anthony List's annual gala, which is an anti abortion group here yeah. in town. Or as they like to say, pro-life. Sure. Because I Fair. I put anti-abortion activists because it had a nice alliteration in a tweet, and I got yelled at yelled at for about twenty minutes. And they I was, are anti-abortion. They though. are anti-abortion. I mean, anti-choice. Well, they yeah. they prefer the term pro-life, which yeah. is also factual. That's fine. I asked the journalists tend to use both because I I'm like I'll I'll just sort of appease everybody. I understand. And no, also annoy everybody. I think that's fine. Um, so the, what what did he say last night at this gala? So what I thought was sort of interesting and what I sort of, what my takeaway was is that he's obviously trying to lure his base back to the polls in November to make sure that, you know, the House and the Senate stay Republican. And so sort of the big issue that he brought up, I mean, he obviously sort of touted his own horn when it came to abortion policy because he has been, you know, a pretty uh, robustly anti-abortion president. President. He had a new thing this week about changes to Title X he wanted to make and so that these grants couldn't go out to basically anybody who was even sort of like whispering about abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has sort of, you know, really uh, appeased the pro-life movement as of right now. But one thing that they didn't get accomplished on the Hill is this uh, this 20-week abortion ban. 
And so obviously it passed in the House because it's, you know, Republican majority. And he pointed out that, you know, they need nine more votes in the Senate. Then he also pointed out that, you know, there are 10 Democratic senators up for re-election in states like, you know, my home state of Pennsylvania, that, uh, you know, it's a Democrat that's now in a sort of Trump red state. And so he's trying to say, you know, if you guys get out to the polls, you can finally get, you know, this big this big you know goal, which is a you know late term abortion ban. In addition to that, he he also was sort of talking about the fact or actually it was the, the other people at the at the um, event talking about the fact that they think that they're only one Supreme Court justice away from overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, which yeah. which, you know, that that could be true i i May, well, maybe I, maybe maybe we, we, we don't, don't know you know we haven't really tested it in a while but in terms of rhetoric in terms of like getting your base whipped up ray and i were talking about this earlier like there are people who will vote for president purely on the abortion issue yeah and i remember purely on the abortion and issue. i remember you know talking to i covered the alabama special and one of the things that was so interesting was talking to voters who literally said to me Listen, I realized that Roy Moore, who at the time had been accused of, you know, being basically a, a, a creep to all these teenage girls and fondling them and doing all these, you know, misdeeds, you know, he was okay because he was pro-life. Yeah. He was anti-choice. Um, and so we're going to vote this guy in, potentially. And obviously he didn't win. We have a Senator Doug Jones now, the first Democrat in, you know, a couple of decades in Alabama. But it was, you know, that was the crucial issue for a lot of voters that, you know, sort of like— held their nose and went to those polls and voted for Roy Moore. So yeah. it is a very potent issue, and I think it will, you know, it remains one. And I think the pro-life movement has been sort of, uh, they're feeling pretty good right now about the fact that, that Trump, who, you know, his views on abortion were very questionable. Because I, I was going to say, I, I don't want to be too crass here, but there are tapes and there are interviews Absolutely. that Donald Trump has given where he has taken a very... I mean, he has made references about abortion and women that he has gotten pregnant (laughs) and what abortions he wishes he may have had the women get and what abortions he has made them get. Like, to be embraced by the conservative Christian party or wing of the party. Yeah. And it's, it always seems to sort of come this, it's sort of like, well, that was, you know, his old self and he's been forgiven by God and he's a man of God now. And so, you know, it's sort of excused away. But, you know, even I remember during the campaign, he was one of the few Republicans that actually came out in defense of the sort of the the medical elements of what Planned Parenthood does. Sure. The, yeah, the yeah, sort yeah. Of the, you know, right. hey, they give pap smears, too, you know. Um, and so it's sort of interesting that, you know, as president and I think, you know, we all we all sort of looked at Ivanka Trump, too, as this sort of moderating factor in the White House who who seemed to be sort of on board with Planned Parenthood. Uh, but then, you know, the head of Planned Parenthood came out and said that she had this like extremely weird meeting with Javanka. With, yes, with Ivanka and Jared, uh, I, I think I believe it was during the transition, if not maybe the first month of the Trump administration, in which Jared and Ivanka were trying to strike this deal with her and basically, you know, say, "Hey, like, why don't why don't we have this deal? We'll give you all the federal money that you want if you stop doing abortions." And the head of Planned Parenthood was like, "Well, no, see, that's kind of the point." Yeah. Right. Like that's, you know, obviously like, you know, only a percentage of our of our care does go to abortion care. But like we're not going to stop, you know, allowing women to to, you know, ab- 
I have abortions. And that's, so, that's the, the and heart it, of what they do. And it, it sort of also showed how naive Jared and Ivanka were going into Washington and thinking, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're part of like the glitterati in New York. We can come to D.C. and, and just have our way with, you know, this town. And that that that's a whole other sort of storyline. But that hasn't worked out for them, obviously. Well, I did want to ask you about that. Right. Because it's I think it's indicative not only of Javanka. Javanka. But other, <laughs> I feel like I got to say it with yeah, a gun. Javanka. But other members of the Trump administration, like they just, right, like there's this whole idea that they're going to be able to come to Washington and completely change the culture. Yeah. Right. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. I mean, there's a sinkhole in front of the White House that's. Little too on the nose, by the way. Yeah. Right? Like a little too oh. on the nose that there is a literal sinkhole on the White House lawn. Some brilliant reporter uh, actually found that because there was, had been a sinkhole at Mar a Lago as well. And it's exactly a year apart. What? Like they, they found this this tweet or they tweeted out that like the headlines in the Washington Post of like, there's a sinkhole at Mar a Lago. And now there's a sinkhole. And actually, it's funny because I saw the sinkhole when I was at the White House like two days ago and saw all these like, you know, National Park Service, like, you know, grounds people like sort of gathered around it, kind of miffed. Like, you know, they have a um, like a sprinkler system sure, under sure, the sure. irrigation system. So I think it's an issue with the irrigation system. I'm but just saying it was kind of funny to, to sort of watch the whole thing play out in person. If I had a sinkhole appear in my residence every year, I would I would personally start to be a little concerned. <laughs> I mean, it's also been extremely rainy. That's fair. <laughs> it's still. like rain like every day. Still. But still, yeah, the, the sinkhole. And it, but, I mean, it, it's a, it's a little too close to, like, the press briefing room. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, um... yeah. But so, like, on, the, on that whole note, right, the, the, uh, talking about them changing the culture yeah. of Washington, have they or are they able to change the culture of you You know how Washington works. Yeah. You've been covering Washington the beat for quite some time. And, like, the source reporting is still a thing. They're trying to shut it down with, like, getting rid of some of the communication staff so there aren't as many leaks. But, like, that's just how things get done here. Yeah, it's Will always... change? No, I don't think so. I and don't it, either. And I, it's funny because I think, you know, Kellyanne Conway is a really good example also because she got outed by author Ron Kessler for being, like, one of the, like, supreme leakers. But, like, I see her out on the town amongst yeah. us swamp creatures, like, pretty, <laughs> pretty often. I mean, she was obviously at the event last night uh, she's uh, extremely pro-life and got an award and sort of talked about, you know, why she is and, and how she, you know, she, she sort of took credit for influencing President Trump to, uh, to you know, sort of take on and, and, and do a lot of this stuff that is making the pro-life crowd really happy. But, you know, she, you know she's still kind of in the, in the sort of movers and shakers orbit. Yeah. And I've seen her at events where you would never expect to see her. I saw her at Mark Penn's book party. Come Mark on. Penn, you know, being, you know, Clinton's Hillary Clinton's longtime pollster. She was there, as was Wilbur Ross. Of course. Which was kind of funny. And you you know, I think people outside of Washington don't realize that like all these people are constantly schmoozing with one another. You know where else I saw Kellyanne Conway? At a CNN party a couple months ago. And it was, you know, I think it was like for women in media or something, but she was there. Uh. So was Ronna Romney McDaniel. I met her for the first time. Uh obviously she was an invited guest. But, you know, I mean, all of these people who are screaming on your television sets are also, you know, you know, clinking glasses behind the scenes. And, you know, the Trump administra- administration hasn't really changed that. 
Uh, I actually think in a way, you know, people in Washington are sort of desperate for any sort of piece of this administration. Yeah. So they want these people to come to their events. At one of the White House correspondence parties a couple of weeks ago, the entire White House press team was there. And like, you know, I could tell that the people that put on the party were very like happy and excited of that, course. you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders like showed up to the party. Of course. With like Hogan Gidley and, you know, Lindsey Walters and all of her deputies. So what does that say? I mean, I mean, I know that that seems like a little bit of inside baseball, but I think it's a, there really is a bigger picture here. Well, the like bigger... When they when they go on your TVs and they blasting the media and fake news, this they are hanging right out. there, hanging out, rubbing elbows with all of these people, with everybody else that they claim to be horrible. And, and that has always been the way of Washington. I remember being at a, a green room of a uh, of a Sunday show and seeing like Van Jones and like Ralph Reed. And, you know, they had just gotten off, the, like, the panel discussion, and they were, like, exchanging business cards and being like, yeah, man, we should, uh, you know, we should get drinks or coffee or whatever. Like, I mean, that is the way of Washington. Everybody sort of fights in, in front of the public, but behind the scenes is is uh, canoodling, mingling, whatever yeah. whatever word you want to use. Totally. No, so, I think that's very fair. So I, I think that that has, has sort of remained. And I think that's one of the things that I plan to cover at this new, you know, this new gig is that, you know, you're still seeing all these people. I think it's important. Cuddling up at, at the cocktail parties. I really do think that that's important yeah. in all honesty. Right? And, I, and I, you know, a lot of people have sort of diminished because I've covered this stuff for, you know, years. But I think, you know, a lot of these sort of fluff stories end up being much bigger yeah. stories in the long run. You know, that's where these like deals get struck, right? You're absolutely right. So you're absolutely right. And like I said, you've done this for a while. You know how this works. Yeah, I was a you know former gossip columnist at two publications. Yeah. So, you know, people would be like, oh, the cocktail meet, you know, or the galas. Right, but like but now it's more so than interesting. ever. It's it, it, a it's interesting, but also like I, I I would like the argument that like yes, that's just for DC might have been applicable before and that's okay yeah but now it's way bigger than that yeah it's way bigger than that when you have a presidency that's waging war on the media that's yet, also there with them all the time they're like hanging out I mean but the thing is I will say that Trump does not go out sure neither and neither does Melania like unless like she's hiding somewhere in DC and like you know getting drinks with her girls like I've never <laughs> seen any uh, evidence that either of them, you know, and we obviously know the president's moves because you have a you have a pool of reporters following him right. all the time. But the only place he really goes is his own hotel. Right. And I think that we in Washington sort of thought after a while, you know, he would he would pull an Obama and potentially leave the Trump hotel and like go out to eat somewhere else. And we're we're about a year and a half in, and he's never stepped foot in. He's, he's, he's occasionally gone to a fundraiser at maybe like a house in Georgetown, but like I, that's about it. I love that like a couple of weeks ago when it was Melania, Melanie's, Melania, <laughs> however you say her name. <laughs> Melania. Melania's birthday. And he gave that big, weird, rambling Fox and Friends interview yeah. and he was like, yeah, I got, her, I got her a card. And some flowers. But like that was always a big thing. Like the Obamas would go out for dinner. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I got her a card. And as a as a, go as a gossip person, we would always sort of speculate and be like, so, because they... One of the things that the Obamas did, which was really great for the city, because if you don't know Washington, we have this sort of like burgeoning restaurant scene 
and it's been growing and growing and growing and yeah. it's you know been, been nationally recognized now but what obamas would do is they would they would pick a restaurant oftentimes in one of the neighborhoods and often often in a neighborhood that was I would say predominantly minority uh, lived in yeah. to uh, to sort of show off what DC had to offer and get, it wasn't Cafe Milano. All it, the time. it wasn't Cafe Milano all the time. They would go into Columbia Heights. They would go into Petworth. You know, they would go into to sort of different places to sort of. They're sh- still doing that, and they are still doing that. Absolutely, yeah. All right, I want to ask you because we, we have Ryan Riley from Huffington Post or HuffPost coming in a little bit later to talk about all of the latest legal stuff. Oh, I have a whole like. <laughs> There's so much a whole to talk list about. of like things let's, to talk about. With let's more. dip our toes into it just a little bit before we before we we, we talk to Ryan. Um, I, let me just ask you this: Where are we now with the Stormy Daniels situation? Oh gosh! So I've even I've sort of lost track. Right? Track I know you had written about this a couple weeks I, ago, I, but like a week in the Stormy Daniels story is like two years. Yeah, I mean, I, I th- there's still like the court case that's brewing in California. Yeah, but you know, I've actually like lost track of the Cohen stuff because I haven't covered her since I started my new job because I'm back on sort of the like peripheral Mueller stuff and this like spy within the. Uh, the Trump campaign, or so the president says. Right, but I think so, that I think that but, really but, but, does but, but, highlight but, how crazy it is. But the stormy stuff. I mean, that. I mean, I I started covering that. It was in January when it first broke, and it's so funny because this would be a scandal that would would literally have taken down any other president. Literally any other. And person. and the, the sort of the craziest thing is so you know there's there's sort of multiple things bubbling up on this. Uh, you know, the group Common Cause had asked the DOJ. And the FEC to sort of look into whether Cohen's payment violated campaign finance law or national, you know, a federal um, federal campaign law because it should have been reported as an in-kind donation. Mm-hmm. Then you also had Trump last week coming out with his financial disclosures, and he disclosed the payment finally to mo- the the payback that he made to Michael Cohen uh, to sort of you know get the heat off of him, but. It it sounds like, from my understanding, that the DOJ could very well be investigating this now because you've got several groups complaining to them about this payment, and and now we sort of know that Trump did pay Michael Cohen back, uh, and Michael Cohen indeed made the payment because he admitted to that. Which, if you remember, whenever he admitted to that, that was uh, Michael Avenatti's sort of end to say, well, yeah. he's he's broken the hush agreement because he was not supposed to talk about the payment either. That was his part of the deal, as was it was Stormy's part of the deal. And so that sort of opened up, you know, her to be able to, you know, do the 60 minute sit down and then appear on Saturday Night Live and all of this stuff. So there's a lot of stuff percolating there. Uh, I can't say that I've like followed it to the T this Fair. to the T this week, and that just shows you how insane all of our jobs are. But one of the things that you just mentioned, <clears throat> the alleged spy, yes, that was spying on Donald Trump. So he certainly hasn't backed off of this. No, he he tweeted about it again this morning. I haven't looked at his tweets this morning. Yeah, let me let me let me pull them up. He also uh, <sighs> defended to, is it Tommy Lauren Laren? See, this is Did why he really. Everybody is with Tommy Laren, a truly outstanding and respected young woman, and of course tagged Fox and Friends in it. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, here he is this morning. Spygate, all capital letters. Spygate could be one of the biggest political scandals in history. Really? Is that what he's? Wanted, is that where he wants to go with this? I mean, we talked about this a lot, right? I think that everybody's focusing on the wrong thing because it's not so much that there was a spy 
that was spying on the Trump campaign. Was an they inf- were under investigation. They were under investigation, and there was an informant. Yeah, which is different than a spy. It's somebody yes. that's playing ball with the FBI, and we don't know who that person is yet. So we don't know sort of what their motivations were, but perhaps they were a little nervous about what the Russians were up to. I don't know. I mean, wouldn't that freak you out? Yeah, sure. But the, you know, to to me, the bigger story. Bill has said this, and he, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, the the story isn't that there was an informant in the Trump campaign, even though that is a story worthy of talking about. The story is that the FBI came out and said Hillary Clinton is under investigation for this, 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 and this. Yeah. Even put out that letter, which was a disaster. 11 days before the election. 11 days before the election. And the whole time, Donald Trump was under the same type of investigation. Correct. From the FBI. They were both under FBI investigation. Why didn't we hear about that? Why didn't James Comey, hero of the resistance, <laughs> who's now t- sort of like become this uh, person that all these, you know, resistance moms love, why didn't he say anything about that? I mean, and that's the big question. Why not come out and say, hey, Hillary, we're looking at her again because, you know, we found they found those emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop in yeah. this other this other case because he had been, you know, sexting with this like 15 year old girl. They grabbed the laptop, saw the emails, waited like a week or so, and then they realized that they were going to have to say, or, you know, as, as Comey says it, they were going to have to say something publicly because, and I, I think what was going on is that they were all under the assumption that Hillary was going to win the election. So, like, hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty. but what, the way that Comey sort of puts it is that, hey, like, we were so worried that she was going to come off as, like, a, you know, not a legitimate president if we didn't tell the American yeah. public that she was sort of back under this email investigation. That, But it is sort of crazy to think that, like, Trump was also under a similar investigation with the FBI and, the, you know, and that never leaked out. There was no... I said this when James Comey's book came out and everybody was uh, slobbering to talk about it, right? Just all yep. over it. And I just said, like, you know, one of the big takeaways was he admitted that it was a political move. Like, what he did to Hillary Clinton by releasing this letter and putting all this stuff out there, that was political. He even admitted, I thought she was going to win. Yeah. And and, it and was... he gets no credit for that, by the way, in my book. He doesn't get praise for that. Yeah. That's a screw up. He screwed that up. Well, I just think, you know, I, as a reporter, I, you know, I, I don't want to have sort of judgment. Understood. Show me, of course. But like, uh, But I do think that, you know, if you do put yourself in his shoes, I mean, you are between... The rock and the a rock and the hardest place yeah, yeah. because in all of, in, in all of this stuff, I mean, the reason why he did that sort of like unilateral press conference a couple months before to say that the Clinton investigation was over and saying you know obviously nobody uh, no prosecutor would you know prosecute her on this issue, but she was you know whatever the quote was like horrifically irresponsible with her yeah. emails. I mean. He he felt that he had to do that because of the Loretta Lynch Bill Clinton tarmac meeting, yeah. and some of the other stuff that Loretta Lynch had done. He felt that like it, it it looked as though, you know, if they let Clinton off the hook, it was because you know Bill Clinton got in there and you know waved oh. a magic wand and made it all go away. What a mess! So I mean, the whole thing is a the mess. whole thing is is such a ridiculous mess. And then now you've got all the stuff uh, this week that's still sort of. I mean, it's it's all we're all back in 2016. Yeah, at all times it will be 2016 forever. And even you know, it's sort and of ever. funny, you know, sort and of ever. circling back to, to the president's speech last night. The, one of the first things he talked about was his election win. Of course, 
And it's, you know, I, I, and I, I hear him speak all the time. And I should not be surprised, but every time he you know, wants to talk about Hillary Clinton, I'm like, wait, we're doing this again. Yeah. And I know that like this is just part of his stump speech at this point. But You know, my favorite moment from the speech last night was somebody clearly wrote this for him. And he was talking about the midterms. Oh, it's yeah. That's the kicker in my story. About like how important the vote was in 2018. And, he, and there was a line that was written in there about how it's even more important than the election in, two, in 2016. And Trump stops. He goes, wait, who the hell wrote this? Oh, it was so good. Yeah. I, like, I, I concluded my story with him when saying, like, I'm not sure I believe I'm that. I'm not sure I believe that. Like, so, who, like who the hell wrote this thing? If you're a, and and if, by the way, he was on teleprompter. So oh, I, I believe that. Yeah, so. so if you're a Trump speechwriter and you put in a phrase or a line about how somebody else's election is more important than yours as Trump, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, ex- expect that to, to go very quickly off the yeah, rails. He didn't it did. love that. He didn't love that. Okay. I mean, it was a good laugh line for the crowd, but everyone else is, you know, all the reporters are like, of, of course you're going to say that, Mr. President. Yeah, yeah of course. Okay, we've got lots more to talk about. Nikki is with us for the whole hour, so we've got another segment with her. And joining us is senior justice reporter for HuffPost, Ryan J. Riley. He will be here, a uh, little roundtable about the current state of affairs with Donald Trump and his legal situations, plural, situations. A uh, very, very quick break. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press. I will be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. I would highly encourage you to check out YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show, where we put up uh, clips from the show all throughout the day. Plus, you can watch the full show, the unedited show, right there uh, on YouTube. Also, if you would rather listen, we do have our podcast. It goes up every single day. Just look for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. Uh, we put it up moments after the show, so it goes up pretty quickly. And it's the entire show. We just edit out some of the breaks. Uh, plus, if you are someone who listens on your terrestrial radio station, whether you're listening uh, in Nashville or in Indiana or any of the other great stations, you, there's bonus content because we start the show a little early. You miss out on some of the stuff. You can get that in the podcast. Just go look for the Bill Press Show. Subscribe, leave a comment, uh, rate it, review, res- subscribe, all that fun stuff that you always hear people talk about when they talk about their podcasts. We encourage you to do the same thing for ours. Okay, so uh, last half hour of the program, we're on the home stretch. Nikki Schwab from the New York Post is still with me, and we're joined by senior justice reporter for Huff Post, Ryan J. Riley. Good to see you, Ryan. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much for coming in. Okay. <laughs> all right. It's been a busy couple of weeks. <laughs> Let's just jump right into it. Um, where are we with Robert Mueller interviewing Donald Trump? Because Rudy Giuliani has said a couple of things. Donald Trump has said a couple of things. Robert Mueller has said nothing yeah. publicly. Robert Mueller has said literally, like, he's never said Literally never, nothing. He's never said anything. Nothing. I, I think if I saw him in person, I would, like, go into shock. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, yeah, you're not an actual just apparition. Are you Robert De Niro or <laughs> are you right. Robert Mueller? You know. So, so actually, look back and like, because it was a one year anniversary recently, and like, there was a single quote that he put out, like right after, like we is lost to, you know, history because it's been it feels like seven years since then. Sure, but like on the day that he took accepted the responsibility, he said, "I will accept this responsibility" or something like very right, like right, just right, like right. Yeah, yep, no, that was it, and then and, that was the. That and was the we're always thing. fascinated, right? Like you know how well people are, are how much people will gossip in this town. Yeah. Like, people love to talk. Robert Mueller, there have been 
no leaks. No, they've been very good. And then, I mean, if you're on the special counsel's like press list, as I assume you are as well, you'll get like an occasional like email, like here's an indictment, and like that's yeah, <laughs> that's it. Okay, <laughs> so just like on your Friday, just like here, yeah, we're just gonna blow up the world real quick. Like, yeah, right? yeah. Just, yeah. just a casual here's, email. Here's a casual indictment. <laughs> Friday, four thirty, about yeah. to head out of town. You guys can read that. Oh crap! But they're very responsive, and like they'll put you on the press list, and then like you know it'll be that's like nice. every, very quick every, with a no comment too. Like, yeah. If you, if you need a no comment very quickly, we'll look it <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah. Quick, you know? Hey, just That's... need a real quick no comment. No comment. All right, thanks. Efficiently yeah. inefficient. Yeah. I like that. All right, so will Donald Trump sit down for an interview with Robert Mueller? No. I don't think so. I don't think so either. No. Yeah. I've been very consistent about that for I, months. Yeah, now. I think he would be like we put him in so much legal jeopardy if he did. I am kind of surprised that like Democrats haven't resorted to like school your schoolyard like, you know, trying to bait him basically into doing it. That's like my one I mean, they should just be mocking him. You would think politically sure. they should just be like, oh, oh, what? You're scared of Robert Mueller? Ooh, what? Robert Mueller got you scared? Like, just full on schoolyard, like, taunting. It, it seems so petty, and yet and it would work. that would 100% work. That would 100% work. work. That would work. I'm surprised they haven't done it. I just, I, I just don't get that. Like, that's what you would, that's the best way this ends for Democrats is with him doing an interview, because obviously he's gonna, not going to say, like, he's going to stumble upon something. He's going to say something untrue because he says things that are untrue pretty frequently. Yeah. Or he's going to say something that's a little too true, like the Lester Holt interview. He was yeah. like, well, when I was firing James Comey, I did, I did sort of have Rush on my mind. <laughs> Correct. You know? Yes. Well, we were just talking about the spygate, as Donald Trump called it this morning on Twitter, and the <sighs> FBI informant. So yesterday, Rudy Giuliani says that Mueller is not going to be able to talk to Donald Trump until they hear more, and a story for HuffPost, he said that about actually. this. Yeah, right. So, so you actually were uh, uh, were in on this story. You and SV Date wrote about this. Um, give us the latest. We were talking a little bit about it, but on this FBI informant and what role he plays in, or he or she plays mm-hmm. in this situation with Robert Mueller. Yeah, I mean, he's been you know outed now. Um, this is Cambridge professor. Fair, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there is. It was sort of out there before, and then finally the WAPO and New York Times said, okay, now it's already out there. I think Daily Caller actually had it uh, first, and it was sort of pieced together. And it wasn't, you know, this was an, everyone sort of suspects like leaks with inside the government, but I think in this case it's pretty clear where this came from because if you look at the sourcing on it um, in the Daily Caller story, it's like, okay, it's sort of familiar with, you know, George Papadopoulos' thinking. Okay. Like, right, right, like right. Um, hmm. so, and it's basically someone who just like talked to three people within the campaign during the campaign. It's not, I mean, it's very common. First of all, we're talking about a counterintelligence investigation here. It would make sense that they would try to talk to people who, would know. And they were, you know, the three people that they were asking about were people who with suspicions of ties to Russia. I think that it was sort of standard operating procedure in a lot of ways. Um, and again, like, I think that what gets, you know, lost here is you have to sort of keep reminding yourself is that this entire theory that somehow that the government was <laughs> was leaning in and trying to stop Trump from being elected just doesn't make sense with the facts we know about 2016 because we didn't know about the extent of this investigation. We only knew about the Clinton investigation and that dramatically, you know, hurt her in the polls. So I don't like this. It is just sort of just like crazy, you know, world that we're in right now where we're talking about whether or not the government somehow swung things like against Trump, which is like, well, first of all, like if the deep state- They thought he was going to lose. Right. I mean, we're just, we had this conversation in the last half hour about, you know, why James Comey made certain decisions 
such as you know giving that letter to Congress mm -hmm. like 11 days before the election right. saying that he was reopening the Hillary investigation. They were all working under this assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win this election. Yeah. So the idea that they were sort of like messing with Trump on the side, like they just he, they probably assumed that he was going to lose. Right. And I mean, it's also like it, it has to be if you think of this as a deep state conspiracy, it's like the worst one ever, because I don't know yeah. if you guys have checked the news recently, but Donald Trump won. He won. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah he that won. was a thing. <laughs> So if there was a Steve State conspiracy against Trump. Didn't do a very good job. You know, should have put a little more work in in Michigan. And, you know, I don't know. Like, you know, just didn't really didn't pull it off quite. Yeah, I I have a hard time figuring out why. Like, it's is it just Trump's ego? Is it just that he wants to constantly show, like, well, I show how bad the government is? I think he's worried that he's going to get ensnared in the Mueller probe. Yeah. I mean, I think it all comes comes back to, you know, being nervous that, I mean, if, if you keep on screaming about, you know, there was no, uh, I wasn't, you know, in with the Russians, which is the word? Con collusion. Yes. No like, collusion. Oh, my God. How could I not remember that? No word? collusion. No collusion. No collusion. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously, you know, he keeps saying it. I think there, you know, there is a concern that there is a there there. And so, I mean, how do you how do you deal with that if you're Donald Trump? You yeah. scream about another scandal. And so he's, you know, I mean, over a year ago, he was like screaming about the fact that you know President Obama wiretapped him. Yeah, that was still like a way to sort of muddy the waters of the of this investigation. So I don't know how many water gates were on this time, but it's a lot of gates. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, multiple there's, gates. Yeah, there's, there's, there's the, remember Memo Gate? Remember that? Memo Gate, which is only like two months. It was not that long ago. Oh. Maybe it was three months. But yeah, that was supposed to be like the biggest political scandal. Now this is supposed to be the biggest political scandal, and it's just, I mean, it's just not. I mean, they didn't. They inter based on what we know now, they like interviewed people who were. You know, on the Trump campaign, they didn't plant a spy in the Trump campaign. Right. Like, they interviewed people. They did not like. It wasn't as though, as far as we know, no one you know who was on was working for the government. Like, you know, was actually embedded in the campaign. They interviewed right. people who did some sketchy stuff with Russia. You know, we talked. We Bill has talked about this, and he he says, you know, people are missing the story here. Right. It's it's the story isn't that someone was spying on Donald Trump. The story is that he was under investigation by the FBI at the same time that Hillary Clinton was mm -hmm. for, and we knew about hers, we didn't know about Trump's. Mm -hmm. And we, we spent some time kicking this around, right? Like, that could be because they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win, mm -hmm. and they had to put that out there early to try and sort of cover their butts. But, like, the real story here is that Donald Trump has been under the watchful eye of the Federal Bureau of Investigations for quite some time now. Sure, but I mean, yeah, I mean the FBI. The, the thing is, is that the FBI followed protocol in the Trump matter. We shouldn't know about an investigation because I think sure. it does smear. Like it, that would have been a, the FBI getting involved in if they had come out and said, "Yeah, we we got him under investigation," you know, and that would have been the FBI interference. We don't want the FBI interfering in that matter. Just to play devil's avocado. <laughs> Didn't they do that with Hillary Clinton? Though? That was my next. I mean, yes, that was the departure from the standard. Like, yeah. right, like they they went by the book. They followed the rules in the in the Trump matter. The the Clinton matter because of all of the you know, uh, Comey would say because of all of these you know various factors, the tarmac meeting, yeah. you know, and the and yeah, yeah I, that's basically they departed from standard operating procedure there. And we actually should be hearing any day now, probably within the next couple of weeks, about the IG report um, that's sort of looking into this. And, um, you know, we'll sort of remind the world once again that actually the FBI's actions hurt 
you know, Clinton during the campaign. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> Not so much Trump. Because if it was a deep case conspiracy, it was a terrible one. I mean, do you remember within the first couple weeks of the administration, uh, there, I mean, Comey has talked about this now because he was trying to blend into the curtains in the, like, the blue room of yeah, the White yeah, House. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, literally. I mean, Trump practically... Which doesn't work when you're like 6'8". Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's a yeah. huge man. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but, like, but Trump practically hugged the guy mm-hmm. because, you know, he was like, that hey, was like... That was an awkward hug. It was so... Oh, that was so bad. It was such a weird <laughs> interaction. But, I mean, like, this is how long this has been going on. Like... Trump loved Comey back then because mm-hmm. he did feel like his letter, you know, 11 days before the election had tilted it toward Trump. And there, there is some evidence to prove that, you know, that did sort of scare off some potential Clinton voters. Yeah. Don't you feel like a little bit of the reason Trump doesn't like Comey is also because he's taller than him? I, I, sw- I, I, I swear <laughs> to you, I have said this multiple times. Multiple times. I mean, if we have to look at the fragility of Donald Trump's ego, right? <laughs> Literally, the bigger guy in the room probably scares a guy like Trump. No kidding. I think that's, I think you're absolutely onto something. It's a little and he's got like, what, five inches on him, too? Yeah, it's a little something. Yeah. yeah. By the way, whenever uh, uh, Dr. Ronnie Jackson came out and talked about Donald Trump's vitals and mm-hmm. said he is... Six four. Six foot three. Oh, six three? Six foot three, 239 pounds. 36, I believe, but yeah. Is it 36? 36. It gets him into the overweight but not obese category. Right, by like a pound. Exactly. For the record, those are the exact vitals that I have. I'm 6'3", 235. Congratulations. <laughs> really? Because like, I look at Donald Trump, I'm like, oh, really? Is that what I look like? To be fair, I am very muscular. Muscle weighs more than fat, which my grandma would still tell me to this day. Because I remember they always said that they that his... His doctors would like add an inch to him to, to keep him under, you know, the the correct BMI. So yeah. he wasn't quote unquote obese. Yeah. So like the Comey thing could actually be a real thing. I think I think that you're onto something. Okay, let me ask you both something that I know that you you've both written about. Uh, this is a character that we've heard about off and on. He went away for a little while, but now he's back. Devin Nunes. Uh, he managed to stay sort of quiet. Yeah, well, he was supposed to. He was supposed. Right. To, he was supposed to like kind of be off the, uh, the investigation, and then he sort of. He's back. back and up. Donald Trump praising him this week. He's fundraising off of it. He actually like we got a we got a copy of a letter that they sent um, that sent to some you know potential donors um, that literally it's like at the top of the letterhead like the quote from Trump on Twitter calling him like a real American hero right up top. So. Yeah, that's it. Like that was like something where you're like, this is supposed to be like, (laughs) the whole point of this, you know, the intelligence committee is supposed to be this nonpartisan, yada, and it's like, it's really just, yep, very political, not not really hiding it very much. The the Senate seems like they're doing a okay, a little bit of a better job. Ron Johnson's gotten mixed up in some stuff, which is like I think like with the FBI text, especially where he's like just gone off on crazy town stuff. But but the House is just. Yeah, disaster. So the FBI is going to be uh, discussing their document requests linked to the Russia investigation. You've written about this. Yes. And the Democrats are not invited. Correct. And they're, like, freaking out. Yeah, as they should <laughs> As be. they should. So, so we had this Monday meeting at the White House, right? And so it was President Trump, Rod Rosenstein, Christopher Wray, Dan Coats. They're all chatting, and there are two sort of big pieces that came out of this. One is that Rosenstein agreed that the DOJ's IJ would look into the, quote, irregularities, so basically like Spygate, 
can and we so, just, can we pause on that for a minute? Because my favorite part about this was that some like I don't know if the White House found a time machine exactly, but <laughs> what happened in this scenario is that on Sunday night we got a statement from DOJ saying we're going to be investigating. You know, we're going to refer this to the IG. They're going to look yeah. into it. Then on Monday, which is, I don't know, the day after Sunday, if just to follow the timeline yeah. here, the White House said that as a result of the meeting that they had on Monday, yeah. that yeah, DOJ was going to be yeah, doing something true. that they already did on Sunday, which was just my favorite. <laughs> wow, that's really it, quite something. Like, they really got really a lot, able a lot to make something yeah. that was already accomplished. Yeah, they were that hard. Folks. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, I should have said that the White House says that two things Correct. came out of this meeting. Sure. Yes. Um, one is, you know, the the, I, the uh, inspector general will be looking at the irregularities, the spies. And then the other thing was that uh, the chief of staff, John Kelly, was going to sort of, you know, put together this meeting between FBI, DOJ, DNI and, quote, congressional leaders. Yeah. So then we find out yesterday who the congressional leaders are. Well, it's all the Republicans. It's, you know, only Republicans. Cha- chairman of uh, House Oversight and House Intel, which is, you know, Devin Nunes. <laughs> you know. <sighs> I go back and forth. I actually saw a tweet about this uh, uh, last night that said that uh, somebody was saying they go back and forth between believing that the republic can actually withstand this <laughs> oh, God. and that we are all completely doomed. And I kind of go back and forth. Like, if the republicans try and cover and, uh, and, and don't actually have these investigations, don't actually ha- like go through any due diligence to actually find out what the hell happened and what collusion is actually there. And if Robert Mueller comes back and there are actual real problems in the Oval Office, will Republicans actually do anything? I think we are cruising our way towards a constitutional crisis. So then you what? think there's a chance that I don't think I mean based on what Republicans have said thus far I I don't think there's I it kind of doesn't matter what's in the report I don't think no. that they're going to yeah I think that's what I think that's yeah. fair that's what he said yeah. but but then what then what happens there's, like let let's just say mm-hmm. Democrats don't take back the House or Senate coming up in a couple of months which I'm hopeful that they do. But let's just say that they Democrats don't. are really good at, you know, screwing these things up. A hundred percent. And they haven't been I, I'm still kind of not understanding the whole like logic of just not putting anyone out there on this and not make it like not like trying to talk about other stuff. Like this yeah. is what the media cares about. If you like this is all the media is going to be talking about. If you want TV time, you got to talk about this. Like I, it, like I was a little encouraged that they are bringing back the old hit of culture of corruption, which mm-hmm. worked so well for them, actually, like mm-hmm. genuinely when when uh, George W. Bush was president. Mm-hmm. The culture of corruption has only gotten worse. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of formed this. Oh, this is what we're going to run on in 2018 for mm-hmm. the midterms. But they're not that far away. Mm-hmm. So, like, they've got to really be out there swinging on this stuff, yeah. I think. Well, I think, you know, they're so worried about, you know, it being Russia, 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 and, they, and they're not talking about, like, economic issues. And I feel like that's what, when they're looking at 2016, that's why they, they feel like they lost. Okay. Was that they weren't sort of, like, you know, really uh, in touch with, like, the people and the struggle, especially in, you know, states like Pennsylvania and, you know, states that had been blue that flipped over to red. Yeah. Let's just say this. Let me ask you both this. Let's say... Robert Mueller comes back. There's a uh, uh, Republican House and Senate. Robert Mueller comes back. Yes, there was collusion. Yes, there was obstruction of justice. He wouldn't find collusion because that's not like a legal thing. Yeah, but you could say okay. obstruction of justice. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Let's say there was obstruction of justice, mm-hmm. and there's enough there for us to make the the sort of 
yeah. assumption that collusion was a big part of this, yeah. right? And Republicans do nothing about it. Then what? I mean, I think before we get to that step, even it's the question of what Rosenstein does in terms of, you know, if he's going to actually let that because he, he has to make a decision when this final report is issued, you know, he, whether or not the whether or not Mueller finds. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so sure. first, Mueller's going to say, you know, either there's, you know, he, he can go a few different ways, but either there's, you know, the president didn't do anything wrong. One lane. Then there's still a report. The question is whether that report becomes public. The president did do something wrong. There's a report. It either says, you know, it could go the Nixon route, go to the grand, you know, go to the grand jury and ask them to make him an unindicted co-conspirator, then put out this report. They could also, you know, just leave it up to the DAG and he'll decide whether or not Congress is going to see it. I mean, that report, it's not necessarily an automatic thing that that becomes public. There's going to be that step in between that, you know, the deputy attorney general needs to make. I kind of feel like that report's going to be made public, no matter what. Whether it's leaked yeah. or whatever, I think that report's coming out. Yeah, I think Rosenstein has been. I mean, you can look at all of his actions, and like he's in a, you know, obviously in an extremely difficult spot. Yeah. Um, so, for sure, there yes. he, there's been some criticism of him for you know sort of appeasing, I suppose, the president in a lot of ways. But you also need sort of need him there. I mean, he's in that crucial spot, and he's you know, it's it's. Interesting to see these criticisms of him now as like this deep state guy. He's a like Republican. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just more like he's a Republican who hasn't just been willing to like bend. I mean, this is what yeah. he's wanted to do his entire life. He's yeah. steeped at DOJ. Like he's like that. He, it's in his blood. Like he, everything about him is DOJ, right? So he doesn't. He's not just going to come in and like throw out all the rules sure. and say like, yeah, I just like, I th- and you know. If you look at you look long term and legacy wise, I mean, this is his defining vote. This is all he's going to be known for. No, yeah. he's not going to do yeah. like oh, <laughs> this is it. Like his Wikipedia page, <laughs> his obituary, whatever is going to come down to this yeah. moment. So I don't think he's going to screw it. I don't think he's going to make a decision that's going to like leave him not looking well in the history books because I don't think he cares about keeping the job as much as he does about like. You know, also, I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen Sally Yates has done pretty well for herself after yeah, getting sure. fired. Oh, yeah. she's, so, she's appeared like three or four times publicly in <laughs> yeah. the last couple of weeks. And, you know, the Democrats are really embracing her. And I think right. like we're trying to push her to run for something. So. Yeah, I think. And also getting fired by Trump would also get rid of all that stuff about, you know, oh, what was that up with that memo you wrote, you know, justifying Comey's firing and, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff would just be out yeah. the window and he'd be a resistance hero once yeah. again. <laughs> again. It's again. funny, um, a little piece of color is uh, Rod Rosenstein was actually speaking publicly this week at the Mayflower Hotel. And like uh, he told a joke basically about the fact that like he's now as like recognizable as J. Edgar Hoover. You know, Jay Hoover would go to the main Yeah, and right. So he was sure. like, he's like, yeah, I used to think it was so crazy that they had to seek him out the back. And, well, now here I am. He, he, you know, there's two jokes that he uses in, like, every speech. One of them is that, oh, I thought this was going to be a behind the scenes. Oh, I didn't recognize. I'd be recognized everywhere. Oh, I didn't yeah. even. My daughter. Yeah, he he, he does this thing where he's like, oh, my daughter was asking me when I became dag, is your photo going to be in the paper? Oh, little did she know. And then he does this other thing where he's like, oh, man, it's really good to be outside the beltway and then that's 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 his whole thing that's you know every time he goes outside the beltway oh man really good to be here you know that's so funny the weather's a lot warmer here and the people are too <laughs> yeah. Rob Rosenstein also very good at dad jokes apparently jokes. I love it oh my god okay we have about a minute left I want to ask both of you a question will Donald Trump I want to say fire Robert Mueller will he try to fire Robert Mueller I think that he'll at least like like scream about it in the Oval Office. Yeah. If nothing else. Yeah. Will he try to fire Robert Mueller? I think there's gonna. It's. It depends. If he goes after the family, yes. I think that that's his his line. 
Um, I think right now his advisors are sort of telling him that this is, I mean, it's a bad move. Disastrous. Yeah. I mean, that's not, the rest of his presidency is gone. Like, and for all, you know. The correct answer, by the way, is yes. Oh, there is. This is a... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The correct answer is he is going to try and fire Robert Mueller. Whether or not he gets away with it, or whether or not his advisors try and stop him, I mean that that's yet to be seen, right? But like he is absolutely going to try and fire Robert Mueller. I think he can have so... to fire Rosenstein, though. I think that that's the way he has to do that's it. That's fine. He'll that's do that part too. of it. Okay. Yeah, he'll fire All everybody. Right. He'll clean house. Yeah, he'll totally clean house. Yeah. All right. Well, that is today's show. Gosh, so much stuff that we covered today. I appreciate everybody uh, for joining me. Uh, Nikki Schwab from the New York Post, Ryan J. Riley from HuffPost. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate Thanks for having it. Me. Go check out the podcast, y'all. My name is Peter Ogburn. Sitting in for Bill Press. We'll see you tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.